Welcome to the Women's Pelvic Pain Podcast, your ultimate source of uncensored information on women's pelvic health. In this podcast, you will hear from health practitioners, holistic healers, nutrition experts, and fitness gurus, in addition to people who have or had suffered from chronic pelvic pain in order to learn and understand everything there is to know about pelvic floor disorders. I'm here to share with you what I've learned in my seven and counting years of personal experience with chronic pelvic pain. Approximately one-third of women suffer from pelvic pain. It's an unspoken epidemic. So many of us have it, yet no one talks about it. However, the mission of this podcast is to break the pelvic pain silence. The conversations are intimate, raw, and completely unedited in order to deliver the most authentic information possible. With education, patience, and the proper tools and techniques, pelvic pain can be overcome. Today I'm here with Dr. Christina Palmer. Dr. Palmer is the first urologist to be on the Women's Pelvic Pain podcast, so this is a very special episode, and I'm so excited to have her here today and for her to share all of the amazing information that she has with us. Um, Dr. Palmer is by far one of the smartest people that I've ever spoken to in this field. I cannot even begin to tell you how much I learned from talking to her, so I can promise you that you guys are really going to learn a tremendous amount of information as well. Um, I'm so glad that we were able to connect and make this happen because this really is such valuable and special information. To give you guys some background on Dr. Palmer, she is a private practice urologist at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. After her urology residency, she completed a two-year fellowship in female urology, pelvic reconstructive surgery, and voiding dysfunction. At her practice, she sees a lot of patients with interstitial cystitis, otherwise known as IC, which is one of her favorite diseases to evaluate and treat. She helps patients to manage the problem of voiding dysfunction, and she performs trigger point injections as well. And in addition to female urology, she also treats men who have different neurological issues. So she is incredibly experienced and knowledgeable. So without further ado, can you tell us how you got started in this field? Cool. Well, thank you for having me, thank Hannah. Thank you for being here. This is really exciting. <laughs> um, I got into urology when I was in medical school. All the smartest boys in my class always talked about urology. And I thought, well, if they can rotate it, in, I can do it too. But I thought it was just kind of old guys and prostates. But it wasn't. It was women. It was kids. It was cancer. It was um, big robotic surgeries. It was all kidney stones. It was, you know, reconstruction surgeries and open surgeries. And I just loved it. Um, and so I did a urology residency in Chicago, and then I did a two-year female urology and um, pelvic reconstruction uh, fellowship at UC Irvine um, with Dr. Gamal Gonim. And now I'm here in Los Angeles. So before we started the podcast, you told me that you do a lot of work with patients who have IC, and that's one of the things that you specialize in. Um, so can you first tell us what IC is for those people listening who don't know or maybe do know but don't yeah. know everything they should know about it? Yeah. So the definition of interstitial cystitis, it's also grouped in with bladder pain syndrome. Um, it, the definition is a unpleasant sensation 
that is perceived to be of the bladder mm -hmm. um, and it is associated it can be a burning it can be a pain it can be a cramp um, and then it has other associated urinary um, symptoms um, for over six weeks of duration and then also it in the absence of any other um, pathology so it's really kind of a diagnosis of exclusion in many ways mm -hmm. so the first question that I really have been wanting to ask you is in regards to diagnosing IC it seems to be a complicated and nuanced diagnosis and from mm -hmm. my personal experience I have found that some doctors think there's a black and white yes and no answer and then some use it more as an umbrella term to diagnose any sort of chronic bladder issues in general based on certain symptomology. So I wanted to know what your thoughts were on this since it seems to be hard to get like totally. a straight answer. Yeah, well, I think to do that, we have to kind of go back to um, IC from the beginning. And it's not just one blanket term and it's not just one thing. Mm -hmm. We have, it was first described back in the 1800s when they had women with these really horrible bladder pains they didn't know what to attribute it to and then once they started looking into people's bladders they saw these um these lesions which they are they're now called hunter's ulcers um, and so for a long time back in the 70s and 80s there was this huge criteria of what interstitial cystitis the criteria that you had to diagnose it and it was so specific that if you got up at night to go to the bathroom, then you didn't have IC. Mm -hmm. Or if your bladder capacity was over 350 milliliters, you didn't have IC. Mm -hmm. um, and, but now we know that that just kind of is not true. So there, there are traditionally two big classifications. So there is ulcerative IC, and that's when you look in the bladder with a camera and you see Hunter's ulcers, mm -hmm. which is sort of the, this stellate scar. Um, and then there, and that's only 10% of the people that have IC. Mm -hmm. And then the other 90%, their bladders look totally fine when we look in. Do they still have pathology and they have disease? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you don't need to diagnosis with those, those ulcers. Um, and then recently the International Continent Society has sort of classified it into even a third one, which is sort of just a, um, like a pelvic hypersensitivity. So we have to look at how, what the etiology is and then kind of group it differently. But mm -hmm. I think for a lot of providers and for a lot of history, it was a diet, just kind of a blanket diagnosis and a lot of people didn't quite know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I think that's where that comes from. So now if you have patients who don't have the lesions on mm -hmm. the bladder, they can still be diagnosed with IC. Correct. So Correct. then they're just diagnosed based on their symptoms. Yes, uh -huh. exactly. exactly. Um, so this is interesting. This is kind of what happened to me when I was being um, tested for IC is that so I had all this bladder frequency and urgency and I was always like, I constantly felt like I have to go to the bathroom, which I still happen to have. But um, my gynecologist sent me to get a cystoscopy and she, she sent me to a doctor that she worked with mm -hmm. and I went to a doctor that my family had been going to see. I didn't think it mattered. I thought, oh, so, why does it matter what doctor does it? So I didn't really even question that and I just went, 
to the doctor that my whole family, the urologist that my whole family used. So he did a cystoscopy, not under anesthesia, and he said, you don't, I don't see anything wrong with your bladder, you don't have IC. So I went back to the gynecologist and told her this, and she was, looking back on it, it's pretty funny, but she was really, really mad that I went to this doctor that she said didn't test me right for IC because he didn't put me under anesthesia. And so then I had to do it again with the doctor that she originally wanted me to go to under anesthesia. And I think he did hydro distension. And I actually ended up feeling like much worse after that one. Mm -hmm. I woke up and I was just like, not okay. But again, he said, I still didn't, he still didn't see anything. And so I don't know. It was just like really, the whole thing was really strange and confusing. And now, so I, long story short, I switched gynecologists and now my new gynecologist who's amazing said that the, the cystoscopy doesn't matter. And that if I had IC symptoms, she, she would still treat me for IC yeah. regardless. I, I think where your original providers were coming from was that it, if you hydrodistend the bladder mm -hmm. and you see what we call glomerulations or sort of these like little petechial hemorrhages in the bladder when it's distended, mm -hmm. which you wouldn't be able to tolerate when you were awake, mm -hmm. then that is a, one of the hallmarks of the ulcerative type of disease. Right. But you may just not have the ulcerative type. You have right. non-ulcerative IC. Right. And so um, as far as cystoscopies go, we do you're all just do cystoscopies in the office all day, every day for a variety of different reasons. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot are diagnostic and they don't, we, they don't require any general anesthesia. Right. We put some lidocaine jelly in the urethra and it's tolerated really, really well. And it gives us a lot of information. Uh -huh. um, and, and we can just do it in the office. So yeah. that's something that across the board around the whole world we so do. Isn't it strange that she felt that way about the situation? <laughs> I think that if she just didn't know, yeah. then I think she just gave you just some misinformation yeah. at the time. Right. But but that was her gut reaction, and mm. I think it just served to kind of make you upset. Right. No other reason. Yeah. I agree. Um, so what do you believe that the causes of IC are? So there are a lot of different proposed reasons for this. Mm -hmm. I think that there's not one reason. I think people may have a combination of things. Um, so this is what I tell my patients. I think that there is a type that is an organic sort of bladder lining dysfunction or, or problem, mm -hmm. disease. And then there is a kind that is really more centered with the hypersensitivity and sort of a pelvic problem. Mm -hmm. So I, I see a lot, what happens is the patients have some sort of injury to their bladder. So an injury being, they can trace it back to a urinary tract infection that caused inflammation. They had surgery and maybe they had a catheterization. They have some sort of autoimmune disease. Mm -hmm. They had some sort of trauma. So there is an inciting event that damages the bladder and the bladder then sort of releases these, what we call APF or anti-proliferative factor and it damages, the bladder lining gets damaged and it sometimes then 
absorbs mm -hmm. painful things in the urine that it normally shouldn't. It has this nice lining in it, the, the gag layer, and um, it's not normally supposed to absorb anything. And I right. think when that happens, then people get pain. Mm -hmm. um, and then over time, because the, the bladder wall isn't able to repair itself, because more stimuli is hurting it and hurting it, then it can become contracted, it can become fibrosed, it has a decreased bladder capacity. And then there's also a sort of a neural component where you have this upregulation of nerves and allodynia. So things that may have not caused you as much pain in the past now cause you a lot more pain. Mm -hmm. Everything sort of gets upregulated in right. that way. And you're also anticipating the pain, so it also makes it worse uh -huh. that way. Um, but I think there is, a, we always have to rule out other things that these symptoms could also be. Mm -hmm. And I always say it can be a gynecologic, your pelvic pain can be gynecologic, it can be gastrointestinal. A lot of times it muscles, you know, muscles compress nerves and it can give you all these symptoms. And so we sort of have to tease, tease that out and also rule out things like cancer yeah. or stones, you know. Mm -hmm. Sometimes cancer can have some of the same symptoms of going to the bathroom all the time. Mm -hmm. So so that's what we do and then and then we can say you have IC. Interesting. Very interesting. Do you believe that anxiety and stress can contribute to I don't I don't know if necessarily they would cause IC but like can aggravate it or can make you have more flare-ups if you already have IC? 100%. Uh -huh. And it's in our AUA guidelines our um, American Urological Association guidelines mm -hmm. is to reduce your stress yeah. with this. I think it's hard to tell people that. It's hard to say, you know, well, just reduce your stress and, right. and things will get better. But it's also sort of a, you see, definitely see flare-ups uh -huh. when people have more stress in their life. Right. Um, and I have some patients that come back in for treatments only when they're under periods of stress because that's when they get their, their flares. Right really interesting yeah um i think the mind has a lot more to do yeah. with you know the function of our body than sometimes people give it credit for yeah i agree mm. with that 100 percent. what what well this is kind of a broad question but how do you how do you treat ic or i guess what's like the first line of treatment that you usually give and i'm sure it's dependent on every patient the treatment will be different but generally speaking totally so I wish that there was one blanket thing that mm. we could give one thing but there's not everyone is so different and I think that's because the etiologies of the disease are different mm -hmm. like there's not just one thing that it's due to right so you know you have 10 people in the room and they could have a mixture of different reasons why they have mm -hmm. this disease um, so the first thing is sort of first line treatment is behavioral sort of modifications or things that you're able to do. Mm -hmm. So number one, we talk about stress reduction. Number two, I always give people a comprehensive diet because diet can affect this a lot. Mm -hmm. And some, some patients are able to completely control their symptoms with diet. Mm -hmm. I have one patient that she can have one spoonful of applesauce and she's fine and she has two she knows she's going to be lying in bed the whole next day in pain. And so I tell people to, you know, if you know that you have more control over your disease, I think it's sometimes becomes more manageable mm -hmm. than something just, that's just happening to you that you don't have any control over. Mm 
Right. So, but oh, go ahead. When, I was just going to say, when you recommend, I guess you're talking about the IC diet. Mm-hmm. So when you recommend that, does it usually, well, for this patient, it takes, like, she can just have that one extra tablespoon of apple of applesauce and she doesn't feel well. But in some cases, would it be like you have to be on the IC diet for an extended period of time in order to feel I think it... Or is it like something you feel right away? I think it depends on the severity of your symptoms Uh and the severity of the damage of the bladder. Right. That's what I think. Right. And I think that it's a disease that isn't going to go away overnight Mm -hmm. with one thing. Um, No matter what the treatment, it's going to take a while for that treatment to sort of take effect. But I think it takes a while for inflammation to sort of go down Right. also. Mm -hmm. So I tell patients to see what they look at the list, see what they eat a lot of, see if cutting out these things makes any difference in their life. And they know, and I will say by the first time they come back, they notice it. it. Yeah, 100%. So interesting. Yeah. So after the IC diet and stress reduction? I will oftentimes, and based on their exam, Mm -hmm. oftentimes I will send them, if they have also pelvic floor dysfunction, so Mm -hmm. like hypertonic, pelvic muscles, I'll send them for evaluation for pelvic floor physical therapy right. because I think it's, and it's not things like Kegel exercises mm-hmm. that actually makes it worse. worse yeah. um, so I, I think that that is one of the biggest things that people can do um, to feel better. Mm-hmm. If it's, if it is a predominant, you know, pelvic Can you talk dysfunction. a little bit more about the relationship between why some people have pelvic pain and IC or how IC causes pelvic pain, how pelvic pain causes IC? I think that it's in large part mm-hmm. due to the, the absorption of those sort of that noxious stimuli from the urine mm-hmm. into, into the bladder. Right. That's why food and drink affects it right. because certain things are going to cause that pain when it gets into the urine right like caffeine or spicy foods things like that um and then i also think that any time that you are having pain mm-hmm. your body's going to react to that so your pelvic muscles in tense. turn yeah. are going to tense up yeah and so i think that's why there's such a, a close association between the two mm-hmm. you know which came first maybe the ic maybe the bladder inflammation right you know so do a lot of your patients who have ic have pelvic mm-hmm. pain as well yes well and and truthfully, that's the hallmark of the disease uh-huh. is bladder pain, uh-huh. you know. And a lot of times, so what we see with with uh, bladder pain syndrome or IC is that it is a pain with the filling of the bladder and usually urination will relieve the pain. Right. And then they have sort of a constant urge to urinate, like you said that, that you did. Right. It's, and then upwards of greater than 80 and 90 percent have um, increased urinary frequency and urgency but just because they have things that overlap with overactive bladder Mm -hmm. it's a little bit different than overactive bladder so people with IC tend to void because they are trying to relieve the pain Mm -hmm. and people with overactive bladder void because they're trying to avoid incontinence Mm -hmm. you know so and then the urgency is different with IC, it's usually at this sort of tonic urgency that happens all the time. And people with overactive bladder, it's like, comes on strong, I gotta go now. Right. I'm gonna have an accident. Interesting. So there's a lot of overlap, even though it's not. But then the what's same. the overlap with, well, I guess you said the overlap with pelvic pain is that, mm-hmm. you know, you have tighter muscles because of the pain. Yeah. But, is and there it's any the bladder other... pain itself. Right. Yeah. 
Um, but what's interesting, like in my case, is that I don't have, like when my bladder fills up, I don't ever have pain mm -hmm. and I never have had incontinence. But it's just the feeling constantly, like 100% of the time that I have to go. Right. But there's no pain. That's awesome. But that's weird. <laughs> it is your body. It's your body uh, manifesting. Like everyone's, everyone presents Everyone is 100% different. Yeah. And that, I think, has made this disease very difficult, as you see throughout mm -hmm. the years, to number one, diagnose. Right. And number two, treat. Right. Because everyone looks a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And the etiologies, I think, can be a little bit varied. Mm -hmm. And they're not... And they still are doing a lot of research on it. And they're all coming up with a little bit of different things. Right. You know? So what are some other treatments? So the first line is, is behavioral. Mm -hmm. So pelvic floor physical therapy, stress reduction, diet. And then, then I talked to them about second line therapies. And that is both medicines by mouth and then medicines that we can put into the bladder. Mm -hmm. So medicines that we have available by mouth, um, and I've heard on your podcast before, is one is called uh, amitriptyline or mm -hmm. Elevil. Mm -hmm. It's a tricyclic antidepressant, but in this case, we don't use it for depression. It works in a couple ways. It is, number one, it calms the bladder down. Mm -hmm. Number two, it helps with pain. And, th and then the third thing, it's a little bit of a sedative, so it helps people get better sleep at night. Mm -hmm. um, it's not for everyone. You have to start at a low dose, and then you sort of work your way up, titrate up to a, to a treatment dose. Um, and then it can have some side effects. People can feel drowsy or not too good on it. So, um, But in a certain subset of patients, they love it and feel awesome. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a totally viable treatment option right. for people. <clears throat> um, the second option is pentosin polysulfate, uh -huh. and it's also called Elmeron. You might have heard of oh, it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it helps to kind of restore that nice layer of the bladder. Uh -huh. um, you have to take it three times a day, and sometimes it takes for a few months to actually see a result. Uh -huh. um, side effects for that drug can be some rectal bleeding or some hair loss. Uh -huh. um, but again, in some people, works really well. Right. Um, and then there are other drugs that are like antihistamines that mm -hmm. have been used traditionally in the past. So that is kind of from a, from a medication standpoint. Right. Um, and then also things are used like neuroleptics, like gabapentin. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have things that we can put in the bladder. So there is a and I use the same sort of mixture of things that I learned from my mentor at UC Irvine, but we we put a combination of DMSO, What's that? Uh, dimethyl sulfoxide, uh -huh. and it also uh, is a nice sort of coating for the layer of the, of the bladder, mm -hmm. and then heparin, which does the same thing, um, and then we put in a, a steroid mm -hmm. and lidocaine and a antibiotic mm -hmm. and then you come into the office and then and we do this once a week mm -hmm. for you know four to six weeks and I've had really good success with it um, and then I have some girls that again come in only when they get a flare right you know because I think if you can control the symptoms and suppress the symptoms you might not always need ongoing treatment right depending on the severity of your symptoms interesting yeah is that what a bladder installation is? That's, that's a bladder, bladder installation. Yeah. And we just do those in the office. 
not under anesthesia, mm-hmm. no IV needed, no nothing. It's it's very um, easy. Very easy. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then why does hydrodistension need to be done under anesthesia? Going back to what we were talking about in the beginning. Yeah. So the thought is is that stretching. Oh right, you said yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you're stretching out the bladder. That would be painful. To yeah. a level, to a capacity that you would physically not be able to tolerate if you're mm-hmm. awake. Especially patients with interstitial cystitis have you know horrible pain as it is, right. and sometimes decrease bladder capacity. I can't imagine doing attempting right. this while they were awake. Um, but we, what we do is we raise the level of the irrigant mm-hmm. about 80 centimeters above their, their pubic bone. Mm-hmm. And then we fill them to the capacity that their bladder will hold. And then we hold it for five minutes. And then we drain the bladder and then we see how much their bladder capacity is. Mm-hmm. And, and that I think is a very effective third, it's a third line treatment right. because it's not, you know, a medication, uh-huh. but it's, um, I think it works for a lot, a lot of women. What are, what are these medicines? Because I was once put on this medicine called Merbetric, and there was another mm-hmm. one. What is that? That's like supposed to stop an overactive bladder, right? I just remembered about that. Yeah, so we have medicines that mm-hmm. help with the urgency and the frequency. They sort of calm the bladder down. So Merbetric is a beta agonist, mm-hmm. and it helps relax the bladder. Um, and then the other class of medications we have for that are called anticholinergics. Mm-hmm. So Ditropan, Detrol, Vesicare, um, if you've heard of any of these. These mm-hmm. are other our other, yeah, our other class. So would you say that I, I see is a lifelong disease or like, or I mean, can it ever go away for good or is it something that can go away for months or years and then come back or like I, how do you... When patients ask you that, what do you tell them? I think it is person dependent. Right. And I think it is what is the, the cause of uh-huh. their problem? Is right. it pelvic floor muscle tightness? Mm-hmm. Is it uh, an inflammation that they've had of the bladder for a long time? Is it autoimmune? Is it, you know, and I think right. there are different levels and you can see, you know, I see also varies in severity as mm-hmm. well. So I think you just have to take it patient by patient right. on that. And do you find that patients who have IC often have other autoimmune diseases as well? So there is a proposed theory, uh-huh. and they're doing mouse models on that for the autoimmune. Anecdotally, mm-hmm. just from what I see, <laughs> what I observe, right. is that, um, yes, there are a lot of times they have other autoimmune Mm -hmm. diseases um and it's something that sometimes goes along with it right so i think there's something to be said for that for sure and then also what about like endometriosis and vulvodynia and other kind of pelvic floor issues so that is why it's super important to do a really comprehensive Mm -hmm. history and physical when you see these patients because these other things can cause pelvic pain and so you kind of have to and it helps to have a group of providers to help treat these patients because it do they have endometriosis as well is that predominant right now do they have irritable bowel syndrome is that predominant you know yeah and it might not just be one thing but all of these things can cause pelvic pain right you know yeah no it makes sense and I feel like a lot of people who are kind of prone 
to having some sort of whether it's like vaginal or bladder yeah they all kind of come hand in hand at some point maybe not all um. of them <laughs> i will say maybe not all but, but like some i feel like some of sometimes some people who get you know who may have vulvodynia have bladder pain or urgency or frequency and and vice versa there i will say you you don't have to get these diseases so, yeah. in a vacuum yeah. you know like yeah. you are uh-huh. still you could still get vulvodynia and have right. interstitial cystitis right. you could still you know have endometriosis you, there's right. a lot of different stuff yeah you know and do you find that patients who have ic are more prone to utis or do you think that like the utis came first in someone's case where they have a history of chronic utis i think that UTIs can be a precipitating factor mm-hmm. for the development of IC in some cases. Um, but I think that patients with IC are not able to tolerate the UTI as well as they did before they had right. the disease because right. they are so sensitive mm-hmm. that any sort of stimuli or noxious stimuli is going to send them in, you know, over the edge right. of what they can tolerate. And I don't, I don't think that they're always associated, and I think a lot of times people get um, misdiagnosed mm-hmm. with chronic UTIs and are not appropriately evaluated, and they're just given courses of antibiotics again and again and again and again, mm-hmm. um, and that has its own host of problems and, right. and risks associated with that. Um, so usually by the time people come to see me, they've had millions of antibiotics and yeah. it's just it's frustrating because also they're not you know a lot a lot of times they're not cultured and then when you tell them they don't have a UTI it's kind of like the thing that they thought they had for so long mm-hmm. like you know they're confused they're confused yeah. yeah you treat men as well I do treat men as well so you see men who have IC yeah so up they estimate three to eight million American women mm-hmm. have IC and up to one to four million American men have IC. Which is a lot. Yeah, and the cost of this disease is um, like over $700 million a year. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if you have a bladder, you can get interstitial cystitis. Right. You're not, Im- not immune to that. Did, did, I guess doctors in the past used to think it was more of a disease that women got or has it always been equally? Well, it's a, it's a higher prevalence in women, right? for sure. And I think with men, you have to rule, rule out some other things mm-hmm. like bladder outlet obstruction and prostatitis and, and things like that, but, but for sure. Um, and then is there any other research that, I don't know, maybe isn't being spoken about now to the public, but that you know of that's being done in terms of treatments for IC? So there's a lot of research right now with IC looking at sort of the urinary microbiome and cytokines and these inflammatory markers Mm -hmm. to try and characterize it more and try to see if we, you know, got a urine sample from you, would we be able to look at the the markers in your urine and let you know exactly what was going on. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also research going on as far as imaging of the bladder for people with IC Mm -hmm. um, because the more severe types are going to have a thicker, more fibrotic, you know, smaller capacity bladder. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to see, you know, sort of less invasive ways that we'll be able to characterize it 
right. better. Right. Um, I was going to ask something else. But I oh, so what, what would you recommend if, you know, people, for people who are listening that might have any sort of bladder issues such as frequency, pain, burning, anything that we spoke about, like what would be your first line of recommendation for them if they haven't seen a urologist or yeah. maybe even if they have? And I would say find a provider that you feel happy with mm-hmm. and confident with and has more than one way to to treat what is going on Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of different options um, and there are people that really know how to treat this condition very very well Mm -hmm. so I would just say you know no matter the city that you're in there are people there that can really help you right and so seek them out you know Mm -hmm. they're they're out there and we were talking about it a little bit in the beginning but if if doctors in the past have told you that it's all in your head or you know this will go away not to worry about it that's not really something that you should I would say if you aren't first of all no one should tell that you that right. you're crazy right like that that's not right yeah. but um if you're not happy with your care mm-hmm. or what's going on then you can always seek a second opinion or yeah. a third opinion I mean by the time people come to see me mm-hmm. they've been to a lot of other providers usually on average right so it's not like I'm the first one out of the gate that they usually find right sometimes they do Uh but but a lot of times they're sometimes not happy with the course of the way something else has gone yeah and um and so I try and help them and see if I can offer something that hasn't been offered to Mm -hmm. them before maybe you know where can people contact you if they want to either come see you like come make an appointment with you or just reach out to you if they have any other questions totally i um i'm at a group called comprehensive urology Mm -hmm. uh and we operate at cedar sinai medical center in los angeles uh the website is comprehensiveurology.com and then i am also on instagram as dr christina palmer Uh, you can find me there you can direct message me and you know if you have any questions or maybe i can just help you get get to somebody that that can mm-hmm. help you so good luck <laughs> <laughs> thank you this was so interesting and helpful and i think that a lot of people have been waiting for an episode with a urologist so that thank I, you for doing you're this. welcome i just hope it gave more sort of scientific background to some Definitely. of the things that you were thinking in your head or right. speculating about that and everybody has those questions right you know so education is the best tool that you can have behind you. I could not agree more. Thank you. You're welcome.